We're in the book of Titus, and um, I want to draw your attention to verse 9 of chapter 1. If you have um, this uh, on page 5 of the, the note, little note packet, I've given you two PowerPoint slides that uh, we, we have. This summarizes what is, is going on here. Titus is a disciple of Paul. Paul, if you go back to verse 1, 2, 3, Paul has given him the charge to bring the churches in Crete in order. That's the word he uses. And appoint elders, appoint uh, spiritual leaders of the church, another way to kind of think about that. And then he says to them, to him, in verse 5 through verse 9, here are the character traits and, and competence levels I want you to look for. And so that's how, if you look at, we divide it into three parts, blameless and proven leadership, spiritual leadership, blameless and proven character, blameless and proven competence. We've gone through the first two. Spiritual leadership, you, you kind of look, how does this individual manage his home? In terms of proven character, if, if, and we looked at that, there are seven, uh, there are five negatives and six positives in, in verse uh, seven and following. And then where we want to pick focus today <clears throat> is uh, blameless and proven competence. Now, that word blameless is the very first part of Titus chapter 1, verse 5. It's sometimes translated above reproach. That's kind of how I like to translate it. But the, the idea of proven competence then is verse 9, and that's what I want to focus on this morning as we get started. So is everybody tracking with me? I'm just a summary to make sure you're all kind of caught up with where we are. Doesn't look like anybody has any questions. So verse 9. Now remember what he's doing. He's laying out the kind of criteria you want to look for. And I, I do want to say this too. None of us in this room meets all of these perfectly. None of us. Now, Woody might get close, but none of us, the rest of us, we're not even close. So I don't want anybody to beat themselves up or anyway. Oh, I'm not even close to this. These are the these are the kinds of things you want to see in a person's life. All of us are under development. All of us are works in progress. All of us are striving toward the ideal. I rarely quote Aristotle, believe me, but Aristotle once said, "You're never going to hit the target if you don't know what the target is." And so this is, this is like a target. And that's why I referred last week, I'm pretty sure I did, to Dr. Goetz's uh, book, a very, very fine book, The Measure of a Man. And I strongly, strongly advocate that book. I've used it, I don't know, several dozen times over the years as uh, when I've done mentoring sessions with young college guys. And it's just a magnificent book. And what Goetz does is he takes all of these character traits that are on this slide from Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 and says this this is a list from the scriptures of what a mature man in Christ looks like. And I, I mean, I really like that. So uh, for whatever that's worth to you, that's a nice book to have. I mean, I even encourage guys to just read it once a year just to refresh your memory in a way, another way of saying it, to Reset your priorities. So it's really, it's, it's, a, it's a worthwhile book. Uh, someone told me, I think it was Glenn, said in Kindle, what was it, a dollar or 99 cents on Kindle? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, if, if you, 
get Kindle, you, that's a tremendous bargain. <laughs> Plus, it comes with embedded videos. Is that right? Okay. Okay. I mean, there's just it's it's very very widely used, and it is probably one of the best books out there and all the different uh, aspects of utilizing the material in it. So anyway, but now look at what he writes here in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that, now that's a purpose clause. So this is the intended purpose, that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is, this is a loaded verse. There's a tremendous amount in here. So let's begin again. As I've read it, and let's begin again. Look at this. Hold firm, or you could translate that, hold fast, to the trustworthy word. To what is that referring? Scripture. The word of God. But did you notice something? He uses an adjective there. The trustworthy word. Why do you think he adds that? Why put that modifier in front of it? Well, you can count on that one as being mm-hmm. the truth. You can count on it. You can depend on it. It's faithful. It's trustworthy. Uh, it's worth your investment of time. It's worth your, your processing it and studying it and integrating it into your life, internalizing it into your heart, all those different ways throughout the uh, the scriptures it's talked about. Yeah, one of the one of my favorite psalms, and it's a long one. It's the longest psalm in the Psalter, is a, Psalm 119. Uh, I preached on that, and it 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 took me I think four sessions to get through the psalm. It's a long psalm, but it's King David's reflection on the Word of God in his life. Now you know at that time it would have been the Old Testament, but he says. Things like, oh, Yahweh, I love your law. I love your precepts. You know, nobody from our perspective would think about that. I love your law? Because, see, we look at it, we've talked about this before when we were in Exodus and some of the Old Testament books. We have a wrong conception of how uh, at least God wanted people to look at the law. David, David reflects, for him it was trustworthy. For him, it was dependable. And that's in, in Psalm 119 is that precious little verse, O Lord, I've learned something. Thy word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. I mean, it's those kinds of reflections are in Psalm 119. In many ways, Psalm 119 reflects what the phrase trustworthy word means. It's worthwhile spending some time on it. And so he says... Hold fast, hold firm to the trustworthy word. This Look for a man, look for a, a potential leader who spends time in God's word. When I was in leadership and when I inter, interviewed um, particularly people that were looking at some leadership roles or whatever, one of the questions I would ask them is, tell me a little bit about your view of God's word and how important it is to you in your life. Now, obviously, it was a Christian organization. You couldn't ask that at First National Bank, probably. But, you know, but I wanted to hear that. I wanted to hear how important is the word of God in this person's life. And faculty, particularly, I was interested in. 
because this verse is really an important marker. It doesn't mean you're a scholar. It doesn't mean you have a PhD in biblical studies. That's not what it means. Do you hold fast to what you've been taught from the Word of God? Do you take it seriously? Do you regard it as trustworthy? Do, do, do you look at it? it I, I used to tell my students, you face any kind of issue, the first question you should ask yourself is, has God's word spoken to this issue? Don't, wouldn't you agree with that? Yes. The, the first question we should ask, something comes up, something, you see something, you read something, has God spoken to this? Can, can I get some guidance on how to think about this? That's kind of what he's, he's saying here. But there is a purpose in this that's just far greater. It's a very practical, pragmatic purpose. Because remember what Paul's talking about here. These are the leaders in the church. So you want them to be firm in the trustworthy word they've been taught so that they're going to be able to do something with it, serve with it, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Now, I'm hoping all of your translations have sound doctrine. I think almost all the translations do, if not all of them. But I want to, I want to encourage you to do something here. Either, I know, you maybe you don't write in your Bible, so write it in notes or something, but the word sound there, you can really translate that healthy. Healthy doctrine. Now, what does that mean? Because it's, it's obviously figurative. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a metaphor. Sound, healthy doctrine. What does that mean? Doctrine is conducive to spiritual health and growth. That's what it means. Maybe I should say that again, because a couple of you have a deer in the headlight look. When Paul says, so that they can give instruction in sound doctrine, in doctrine that is conducive to spiritual health and growth. Is that similar to when I was a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I thought as a man? It's that, it's that idea. It's part of growing up. It's part of maturing. I mean, another way you could look at that is you will not grow spiritually if you're not in the Word of God and you don't understand doctrine. Now, let's talk about this for a little minute. Notice how he says it, sound doctrine, doctrine that is conducive to spiritual health and growth. So let me ask you a question. I don't know why I said it that way. I'm going to ask you a question. This isn't rhetorical. I want you to think about it. Suppose I gave you a piece of paper and it had six and numbers, six numbers ordinarily listed, one, two, three, four, five, six, with a space after each one. And here's your assignment. What do you think are the six most important doctrines that every Christian should know? And I, I mean, by know, I mean really be able to explain it. What would you say? Joel has provided me with a board, and since First National is so gracious in providing this through Joel, I'm going to use it. So I'm going to do that. One, two, three, four, five, 
6. I'm just stalling to give you time to think. But what would you say? What would be the six doctrines that every Christian should know about and be able to explain? I don't mean like a systematic theologian, but be able to explain it. Because this is what he's talking about here. He isn't using a, a word like sound Oprah Winfrey ditties. You're supposed to laugh at that, but nobody did. <laughs> sound axioms from Dr. Oz. That's not what he's saying. Doctrine. So, I've given you enough time to think about somebody's hand up. I saw it. Huh? We are all sinners. All right. Uh, this, there's no order to this because I'm. But the whole idea of sin, and if I can put words in his mouth, and it's antidote. Okay? What else? Mediator. All right, that's, let's broaden that a little bit. That's a, and I, that's a good one, but yeah. I mean, I mean you know, doc, big doctrinal areas. Redemption. All right. Um, let's again use a really big, broad word here. The whole doctrine of salvation and everything it involves justification, redemption, atonement, all of those words. Does right. That include exclusivity, the only way through Jesus Christ. Okay, well, okay, that would that would fit into here too. I mean, it, there's one way to Father, I am the way that you can life, no man comes to Father but through me. What what else? How about I'll just try how about it's a suggestion. How about God? Yeah. How about the nature of God? The nature of God as Trinity. Right? Yeah. I mean that's a doctrinal issue. You're supposed to say right to that. Right. Isn't that right? I mean, that, yes. that's a doctrinal issue. Would, would the existence of the Holy Spirit have its own doctrine? Or is it well, that, that would be a part of this. I mean, you can, each one of these, you could list about 17 different subjects. But, you know, to me, and because I've done this many, many times in the churches, I've been in all over the United States over the years I was in leadership. There, there are very few Christians who can, in one sentence, explain the Trinity. Now, you can. Remember? One essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. Right? That's what's on the tip of your tongue. Right. Yes. Right? I mean, that, yes. that's, I've used that a lot. I had, uh, in my, my Sunday night class, there's a lady, uh, it's, it's really remarkable, very few people have done this. She so wanted to master her definition and understanding of the Trinity, she put that definition on her screensaver. So every time she turns on her computer, that comes up. And just remind her again, who is my God? He's one essence of three persons who differ relational and functional. I mean, that was really neat for me. Well, she actually told my wife that, but that was really neat to hear that. She's really taking that seriously. Is there anything else that we maybe want to put up here? Heaven? Resurrection? All right. Um, Resurrection. Let's. Um, okay. Let's. There's so many. The whole doctrine of the resurrection and everything that's about eternal life. I'm writing real fast here. I know I can hardly even read it. 
and all that's involved about eternal life in heaven, new heaven and new earth, our new glorified bodies and all of that. Anything else? Truth of the Bible. All right. Certainly, let's, let's just kind of put it this way. The authority of the Bible. My, uh, my pastor, uh, the pastor of my church where I'm on staff, he, he set this out, and we're, we're going to hit it again in the beginning of 19. Every four years, he wants me to do a five, uh, five messages, five uh, series of messages on um, the authority of the Bible. And this is the title of the series, Why Can I Trust the Bible? And that, uh, he, he's, he's spot on there, because that is the, that's exactly what this verse is saying. But it's, why can I trust it? Why can I have confidence in it? Why can I say that it has authority in my life? That's really, really important issue. Any, anything else you can think of? Yeah, Tom. Are sins separated us from God? Well, again, I think that would all, that would all be involved in everything that's in, in that uh, very, very big concept. How about abundant life? Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> all right. See, to me, that all fits in here with justification, sanctification, and all that. Anything else you think would really be important? Yeah, that Jesus has promised to return for us. The return of Jesus. Have any of you ever heard of the fundamentalist uh, modernist controversy? Have you ever heard of that in history? Yeah. Okay. I'm wondering if Debbie Blank doesn't talk about that a little bit. She, she I have no idea. spoke about the three viewpoints of Israel, and, and she was actually talking about, uh, I, I can't remember all three, but replacement theology was one of them. Um, Well, yeah, there are a couple of them, but it it appeared to be, while it was viewpoints of Israel, it it touches on what you just mentioned. Well, the reason I I ask that question, and I know that uh, if you don't have a real interest in history, you probably don't uh, know this, but in the 1920s and into the early 1930s, is what uh, it was called then, and it's still kind of referred to it historically, as the fundamentalist modernist controversy. It was a struggle in all the mainline denominations, Presbyterians, Methodists, the United Church of Christ, and all those, struggle for control. And the struggle was between a group of conservative, what you and I would today call conservative evangelical Christians, then they called them fundamentalists, and those who have an anti-supernatural bias about the Bible, that miracles are just stories that were made up to prove a point, there never really was a man named Jesus who could walk on water. He was just a rabbi and all of those things. And that, 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 that control was a very, for fight for was very, very serious. Did you ever hear of the Scopes trial in 1925? That was kind of a, the epitome of it, like a real representation of it. Because that, the Scopes trial, the way it was pictured and, and depicted in the news, was science versus the Bible. And who won out? Science. In the Scopes trial, science went out in public opinion. 
not in terms of anything else, just in public opinion, because it was just it was the way it was presented. And a wealthy businessman in New York said, I will finance the writing and printing and publication of a series of books that defend genuine biblical historical Christianity. Do you know what the title of those books were? The Fundamentals of the Faith. And I don't remember, I can't remember exactly the volumes and what order they, and volume number one I know was The Authority and Inerrancy of the Bible. Number two dealt with Jesus Christ, the virgin birth and deity of Jesus Christ. Number three, and again, I'm not sure I've got these orders, but a, a third one that was very much part was the whole idea of the doctrine of God. How do you define, talk about, and discuss uh, the nature of God and all his attributes? The second coming of Christ. And these were some of the things that were, each, each volume dealt with a particular, and they were called the fundamentals. And that's why they got the label fundamentalist. Now today, I think you, fundamentalism is a pretty negative term. It has a lot of negative connotations. But back in the 1920s, it didn't. I, I'm using all of this as illustration of what we did here because this is what he's talking about. I'm sorry? What was the name of that? It was simply called The Fundamentals. It was a series of books. They were, they were, they were, when they were originally published, they were small little books like this. They could easily be handed out. Now, many of them were just, he, he, uh, he financed it, and he organized a lot of them just to be given away or sold for like a dollar, things like that. Was, was this one, one, one author, or was this guy? No, it was a whole series of authors, you know. I mean, if you really, you can Google it, and there are a number of things available, but... Um, it was a group of 90 essays, um, and it's, originally it was in a 12-volume set, now it's in a 4-volume set containing all 90 essays. There you go. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Yep. A.C. Dixon and uh, <laughs> Ruben Archer Torrey were the editors. Mm -hmm. Ari Torrey. These are very famous individuals in the early 20th century. Their names are very well known. But it was an example, because what this businessman was interested in is people are losing a commitment to sound doctrine. And he wanted it available for people to read it. Now, I want to ask you a question. I don't want anyone to answer this. I don't want you to even move. I don't even want to see any kind of nodding. All I want you to think about, do you believe that your church is making an effort to teach sound doctrine? See, if what Paul is saying here is true, then our churches should be stressing the teaching of sound doctrine. Do you agree with that? I mean, that, that you can say yes to. I mean, I just don't want anybody, I don't, I'm not trying to criticize, I don't have any church in mind. But I know in my church, where I, this is something we are really committed to this. We have made a deep-seated commitment to doing this. Because I think, listen, the more you understand who God is, the more you will, one, be comforted by this great truth of who he is and also convicted by it. God is not a fair-weather friend. Christian Smith, who's a sociologist, Christian, and a really neat guy, 
he has come up with a phrase that characterizes it based on all of his sociological research of Christians in the 20, late 20th, early 21st century. He says the Christianity of so much of evangelicalism in North America is a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic Christianity. Now you have to think about that. But he's, he just said because the typical Christian in North America does not know sound doctrine. And their view of God is a deistic God. Now, I don't know if you know, remember what deism that comes out of the enlightenment of the 18th century, but there is a God. He created all things, but he's kind of like an absentee landlord. He's not involved. There's no major supernatural acts of God. He's a creator, and that's it. And I call on him just when I get in a really serious situation. Any idea of him 24-7, intimately involved in everything I do, that's foreign. And moralistic, it's a set of moral standards, therapeutic. The focus, that's the reason he chose that. The focus is, I want to feel good. It's all about me. Everything serves me. Everything revolves around me. And I only call on God when I get in trouble. Now, that's very cynical. But in many ways, that's where so many people are. Why? Because they don't know sound doctrine. I told you last week about Peggy and I last week watched, uh, or actually I guess it was two weeks ago now, but watched two of uh, Louis Giglio, G-I-G-L-I-O. I honestly, I would really encourage you, if you ever get just his first one, where he looks at, it's a question, how big is your God? How big is your God? And he said, I want to introduce you to a very quick, brief overview of astronomy. All the stuff from the Hubble telescope to stretch your understanding of who God is. We serve a big God. And he says, how do you think about time and distance? You think of time as 24 hours, 365 days a year. You think in miles. God's eternal and God's infinite. He measures things in light years, 5.88 trillion miles. It's the distance light travels in 365 days. You know, all of that I knew from science class, but to just hear somebody take the word of God, David, Psalm 19, looking in the heavens on his palace in Jerusalem, and he says, oh, Yahweh, the heavens declare your glory. You look at the photographs on the Hubble telescope, you get a whole different perspective on that declaration of King David. And they, the, he shows this photograph in the Milky Way, and you know what that is. It's not a candy bar. It's the galaxy that we're in and our solar system is in. And he, he has a little arrow pointing to a little dot. That's Earth. I mean, it's just you know, vast and magnificent and powerful our God is. I'm saying all that because that's sound doctrine. The bigger your God is in your mind and so on, the more you can trust him. There's nothing he can't do. He's not a deistic, fair-weather friend. He's the sovereign Lord and creator of the universe. And he knows your name. 
you're important to him. That's you put all the stuff in the Bible. That's what it's saying about our God. So Tim, yeah. There's a uh, for, for the guys in the group here. There is a CD that that uh, takes you through that too, and it's by Gigliani. Gigliano. Giglio, yeah, but. And uh, it's well worth seeing. I think I, I showed it maybe six or seven years ago to the group. There was a handful of us there. And yeah, there was just a few of us at that time, and um, so just so you know that that which Jim speaks of, you can see it, and it's worth your acquisition of it if you want to. And well, we live in a, a wonderful uh, time uh, where we can access so many of these resources very easily, which stretch our so. Um, let me go on then. I got down about four different bunny trails there, but all of it. Would you go back now, Sound Doctrine, we talked about that, but would you notice, give instruction in Sound Doctrine. Now, the, the, I, the challenge with that translation is, give instruction, you have the idea of somebody standing at a lecture. That's not really what he means by that. You understand what I mean? Give instruction. A better translation of that would be exhort. Now, when was the last time you heard the word exhort used in a sentence? Nobody knows what exhort means. So that's probably why they chose to give instruction. But if I exhort you to do something, what does that mean? Say it again. Hold you up. Implore. Strong, implore, you know, keep sh making it stronger. <laughs> urge, yeah. Admonish. I mean, exhort is a strong, intense word. To exhort, to challenge, to urge on. Um, it's far, far stronger than the word encourage. Sound doctrine. When you, uh, you know, I think that's probably true for almost everybody. Uh, Joel still has one or two at home. I think the rest of us, our kids are all grown. But when you were raising your children, how many times did you exhort them? You get, like, better grades at school. Well, yeah, I mean, or, you know, but listen, listen. I want to ask you this. It's really important to understand the meaning of this. What was your purpose in exhorting? You understand that question? What was your purpose? Not why you're doing it, because they may have been doing something wrong or violating some standard or got an F in a class that you knew they had the ability to get at least a C or B in. So exhort. What, what's your goal there? What's your purpose? To edify. To restore. To It's not just punitive, right? You're not just punishing. You're, you, you want to change their behavior. Correct. To correct. I mean, it's all of those things. That's, that's what you... So that's what Paul is saying here. You're using the sound doctrine that comes from the trustworthy word to affect behavioral change. And that's what the Word of God does. And that's what sound doctrine does. If you truly, truly believe that God is the creator 
and God created all those galaxies and this incredible, incredible universe, it's going to change your whole attitude about everything. And you factor that in with the fact that he's also a God who knows who I am, loves me, and is interested in every single thing I do. That affects how we live. That's what Paul's getting at. And he adds one more purpose. The end of verse 9. And to rebuke those who contradict it. The it is referring to sound doctrine. How will you be able to discern error if you know biblical truth? If you don't know biblical truth, you will not be able to discern error. It has been said the most effective, the most effective antidote to heresy in the church is to teach sound doctrine. If you teach sound doctrine, people understand it. And learn about you'll they'll never follow error. They'll never follow heresy. I think I mentioned this a while ago. I, I, maybe I didn't. I, teach a lot of different places, but if I did, it, it, I apologize. If not, it just illustrates the point. When Peggy and I were still in Pennsylvania and we had uh, were involved in our church and had some unique ministries, we led a young gal to the Lord. It was a, it was a terrible marriage. Her husband was abusive. He was, he was really an awful man. And she had temporarily separated from him. She was living in an apartment, and every Tuesday night, Peggy and I would go over and spend about 90 minutes with her in, a, in intense Bible study. She'd just come to know the Lord. She was really, really untaught. So we were uh, we excited about it. She was incredibly open and teachable. She was just growing. And uh, one Tuesday night, we got there, and she was so excited. She said, Peggy Jim, last night, two people came to my apartment, and they were so nice and welcoming, and they gave me some literature. And they said, every Monday, they'll come over and do a Bible study. So that'll be two Bible studies in a week. And all of my antenna are gone up, and I'm thinking, okay. I said, Judy, would you, they said they gave you some, you said they gave you some, would you show it to me? And she went back to her room where she had her stuff and came out, and it was a copy of the Zion Watchtower magazine. And so I swallowed hard and thought, okay, now what am I going to say? And I thought, I can't ignore this. So I said to her, and I said, now, Judy, I said, I really want to encourage you, don't, don't have a Bible study with them. I said, you're, you know, you're just uh, coming to know all the Christian uh, doctrine and the Christian faith stands for. But I said, this group represents something that we call, uh, call heresy or cult. They don't believe in the deity of Jesus. They don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. They believe that you earn and merit your salvation. And I said, just those three things should tell you, oh, she said, well, I don't believe that. I said, well, good. Good. So you don't want to spend time with these folks. And I said, Second John verse nine says, "Do not even leave false teachers into your home." So I said, "Why don't we agree? You're going to follow that verse. You're not going to let them into your home." 
because they're not teaching the truth. But she said, they're so nice and so kind. And I said, well, I know that. And I, I said, sometimes we who represent the truth about Jesus aren't as nice and kind as some of these others. But I said, Judy, they really do represent error. And she, years later, when we had moved to Texas and so on, we got a little note from her. She just said, I am so glad that you challenged me to not allow them to come into my home. Because just think of what would happen. You know, I'm saying one thing, they're saying something else, and it's just, there's error creeping into her life as a very young babe in Christ. So Paul is saying, choose leaders who know sound doctrine, can exhort those who need to learn it, and be able to pick out and rebuke error. Now look at verse 10. What's the first word of verse 10? F-O-R, for. I'm pretty sure all of your translations. It's a gar. It could be translated because. Verse 10 through the end of the chapter gives you the reason why you want mature leaders in your body, in your church. Because there are people in the church who are not teaching sound doctrine. So there is an inextricable linkage between what he is saying in verses 5 through 9, the kind of leaders you want to have in your local church. And you could summarize it because what they will do is they'll put a hedge around your flock. There'll be a hedge around your flock to guard them. Because there are people that are not teaching truth. And so that's what launches us into the next paragraph. And if you're following the outline, the, the, the focus on the false teachers. These are in the church. These aren't, you know, Hindus and Bo- in our era, Hindus and Buddhists, etc. outside. These are people that are in the church or that call themselves Christians. Because there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. And before we look at the phrase that follows that, let's look at each one of those. These three terms or phrases, pretty consistently for the last 2,000 years, describe false teachers. Let's take each one. Again, as you know, I'm reading from the ESV translation, so your, some of your translations might be a little different. For there are many who are insubordinate is their first character trait. What does that mean? Okay. Unwilling to abide by the gospel. Unwilling to... Abide by leadership. leadership, authority. My version says rebellious. Rebellious. Yeah. I mean, it's, there is no word that better summarizes the millennial generation in American culture than insubordinate. 
the chief characteristic of the millennial generation is they do not trust institutions and do not want to submit to authority. That's not, I'm not, that's not a negative critical, but it's just, that's because what has happened with technology and everything is you can kind of create your own reality. You can create your own reality and own, everything revolves around me and everything feeds. You know, isn't that true? I mean, you know, the technology of our, you know, uh, can I tell you a, a quick bunny trail story? I just finished writing an article on Generation Z, Gen Z. That's now what sociologists are calling the generation that was born from 1998 to the present. You know, we, you know, there's the boomers, then there's the Gen X's, then there's the millennials, now there's the Gen Z's. I don't know why they call them Z. I really don't, but it's really, it was, I, Barna and a group of others, when I was doing the research for this article, I, I found a lot, of, and it's really fascinating. Everything about it wasn't te not terribly surprising to me. You know, they're technologically savvy, they, they don't trust authority, all those things that, pretty, but you know, the, the characteristic that shocked me, and it shocked the researchers, as a matter of fact, in the Barna study, they said, this is historically unprecedented. They are the loneliest generation we've ever studied. Isn't that interesting? Oh, I love this class discussion. Don't you? Dave, I mean, to me, that I... I the more I thought about it and I read some of the stuff they made, observations, everything about Gen Z is superficial and shallow. There's no depth to their right. Facebook doesn't cultivate depth. Instagram does not cultivate depth. I'm going to test that hypothesis with my granddaughters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these are general, you know, studies like, but it's, it's fascinating because what... What they were concluding is that, at least in terms of this Barna study, they said that is one of the most significant things the church can focus on. That this one of the most significant characteristics of Gen Z that the church can focus on, because the church has a solution to that. And I mean that's the reason I wrote the article and shared it with my my staff at the church that. That is something because youth ministry today, these, these are the kids that we have in our youth groups. They're Gen Z. That, I mean, and it's just what I'm trying to, you, you see what, what Paul is, unsubordinate? Insubordination is the characteristic of American civilization today. It's a postmodern, post-Christian, autonomous civilization. And just those three words, postmodern, post-Christian, autonomous is a society that's going to be insubordinate. <laughs> that's not going to trust authority. It's, it's not going to be willingly submit to a lot of authority. And, uh, and it, I think I see that uh, uh, quite a bit. Uh, what about millennials with that they also um, don't like authority? They also, they're afraid to invest. They're afraid to buy houses. They're with work. They're very much, um, there's kind of a sense of loyalty. You'll see a lot of meandering. How does, so is, is Z a hybrid of millennial, or is he stronger depth than millennial? I'm not sure everybody's quite figured that out yet, because they're so young. 
you know, 98 till now, you're, you're still in most of their teenagers or very, very early adulthood. Uh, so I, I think that's part of trying to figure out where are they headed? What are they going to look like in 10 years? That's part of the question. One of the characteristics of the millennials, which is quite shocking, is um, in the millennial generation, 30% of guys who are not married are still living with their parents. And they're in their 30s. You know, they're not married and so on, but they're not living alone. Percent, They're living with their parents and they're in their 30s. 30% of God, and you have to put the qualifiers on it, but to me that's a shocking observation. It just, and that has nothing to do with the text, but I just thought I'd throw that out. But this idea, okay, false teachers are insubordinate. They do not come under authority. Their basic spirit is rebellious. Second, they're empty talkers. That's how the ESV translates that, empty talkers. That's a great translation. Empty talkers. What does that communicate to you? Verbiage without substance. Yeah. They're not saying anything substantive. They're really not saying anything worth, to, <coughs> worth listening to. What the, this is one of my favorite words. What they're saying is vacuous talk. Isn't that a great word, vacuous? It's empty. It has no content. It has no meaning that you should pay attention to. And it isn't that they're not talking. They're talking. They're speaking. They're communicating. But they're not saying anything worthwhile in terms of content. And you don't have to raise your hand, Fred. Just. <laughs> My heart goes out to those lonelies. Hmm. Uh, because I think what transcends everything is what Christ has offered us, and that's love. If we truly love others, I mean sincerely, and we care about them, I think they're smart enough and intuitive enough to realize that and maybe open up to us that we can have a dialogue with them and a communication with them. Well, I, I, I don't disagree with that at all. That's why I said in response to Dave's uh, question or comment, uh, one of the conclusions of what the Barna Group was saying is this is a tremendous opportunity for the church. If what these studies are showing, again, these are teens. And I mean, you know, the teenage years are just emotionally, you know, it's a very difficult time for kids often, but... If loneliness is their major characteristic, that's something the church can, the church has an answer to that. But we got to get them to the church. We got to get them coming. We got to get them exposed. So it's, it's, it's an activist way of reaching out. Because I know, um, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't even tell you how many times this has happened to me, where parents come to me, I just had one yesterday, parents come to me, my, my daughter, and here are the questions she's asking. I mean, that, unbelievable questions. No teenager at 14 years old was asking those kind of questions 10 years ago. It dealt with sexuality issues. It dealt with gender issues. It dealt with why should I believe that Jesus is the only way? I mean, those kinds of questions, I mean, you know, 10 years ago, a 14-year-old asking questions about gender? 
how do I know I'm a woman? I mean, you know, I just, but yet that's not an irrelevant question in 2018 when the term and concept of gender is a very fluid concept today. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's almost unimaginable what kids are, and that's why I can, when I read that in the Barnard study, I thought, oh my goodness. That's really true. I see it in some of the kids in our church. I really do. I see it in some of them. And it's the kind of world that they create around technology can be a lonely world where you're re- you have no real, the way we normally define in terms of interpersonal relationships, we don't have any friends. A Facebook friend is not a friend. I mean, it really isn't. And I'm not, I'm not against Facebook or any of that stuff, but it's just, it's a tool and it can control. The third, I got to move on here. Can I do one more yet? Third, third characteristic is the deceivers. Um, what is deceiver or deceit? What does that mean? Liar. Misre- that's a good, misrepresenting. And, and to be a deceiver, to be deceptive, to use deceit is a conscious intentionality about it, right? It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be a word of manipulation and control to get, yeah. And so, I mean, this is a, deceive is never a positive word. Never. It is a word that is used in Genesis 3 of the serpent. In other words, of Satan. And those who are promoting false teaching are consciously deceptive. And so you look at those three, they're both phrases and terms, and that's what Paul is doing. He's laying out this is why you must know sound doctrine. Because there are people out there in your churches who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Now, he cites an issue that was in the first century church, the circumcision party. We'll talk about that next week. But today, now, I... I uh, could he open a Pandora's box in the two and a half minutes we have left? But today, in the large people group who name Jesus, who are Christians, who name the name of Christ, very broadly speaking, can you think of illustrations that meet these? I'm not necessarily asking you to name a name here. Can I tell you, a couple of Saturdays ago, I, Saturday morning is usually when Peggy sleeps in, and by sleeping in, that's about 6 in the morning. But I get up about a quarter of 5 normally. and So I got up this morning, I, was, I put the coffee on and went on, turned on the TV set, and I don't even remember what channel it was, but there was something on called Camp Meeting. And I saw this guy who was really three-piece suit, very articulate, and so I I listened to him as I was waking up, and it boy, it woke me up. He said, I'll tell you, you send me $1,000. 
That'll be seed money that will become $10,000. So sit down and write your check, send it to me. Here's the address. And he quoted from the book of Micah. Now remember, this is 5 o'clock in the morning. I can imagine many people in the United States are watching him, but it's, you know, I assume people are. And I just thought, oh my goodness. That's deceptive. That's empty talking. What authority in the name of Jesus Christ does he have to say to you, send me $1,000 and God will make it into 10000 Now I don't know, guys, and maybe I'm getting a little too emotional here, but that's false teaching. That's deceptive teaching. There is no guarantee in the Bible, the authority of the Word of God, you have no right to say that to people. And that's an example. To me, that is an example of what Paul's talking about here. And I just, and I just, I sat there, I mean, I, I was just barely getting away, but I just sat there and I just said to the Lord, I think I said it three times, Lord, I can hardly believe somebody using your name is saying something so blatantly false. So you know who people respond to that? People who do not know sound doctrine. I mean, I'm using that as an illustration. Do you understand? That's why this is, a, this is a very relevant issue to you and me today. We don't have the circumcision party. But we, there are a lot of people who name the name of Christ, and I mean that broadly speaking, who use these tactics, as Glenn said, to manipulate, to get them to do something that benefits them. That's what he's going to talk about. They're in it for themselves. So this is not irrelevant material for you and me. This is relevant today. And I, I just want to really challenge you all, and I've got to quit now, challenge you all that sound doctrine matters. So I, I want to give you a quiz next week. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I won't do that. It is. Yeah, it, we're going to talk, I want to talk about that next week. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly whom he's referencing. All right, I'll tell you what, I'm going to pray, and then thank you, whoever gave me this cup of coffee. It was very good. That's always a rich, rich, rich blessing from the Lord. Lord, thank you for our time around the Word of God. Thank you for the clarity of verse 9. In some ways, I think that's one of the most important verses in this whole section. Um, to be able to exhort with sound doctrine and to refute those who don't know it. Because there are a lot of people out there using very deceptive, empty, empty conversation to manipulate and control for their own selfish ends. That's a very crude way of putting it, but there often are so many out there like that. Lord, it is important for us, and I thank you for these men that are willing to come on a Wednesday and, and allow your word to speak to them. I thank you for their willingness to take an hour like this to think and, 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 and understand and apply and internalize the living word of God. To be men who are interested in sound doctrine. Men who are interested in living a life that's pleasing to you. For you are a great God, an awesome God, but a God who loves us and sent Jesus 
to deal with our sin problem and to give us the promise of eternal life, to give us the ability and the capacity and the power and strength and enablement to break those old habits and patterns and to live for you, a life that is honoring and, and a life filled with the joy and abundance that you offer us. So bless us, dismiss us now with your blessing. Take care of us as we go our separate ways and as we always try to repay, pray, Lord. Enable us to represent you well in our thoughts, in our deeds, and in our actions. To the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. See you next week.